If you have your Bibles, you can do me a favor here real quick. You can open up to the Table of Contents, all right, to the beginning of the Bible, right there, Table of Contents. Everybody got one of those. If you have an iPad or iPhone, that would be a little better. But, all right, if you have a Table of Contents, open there. See, what happens a lot of times is we get ambitious, right? We're going to read the Bible, we get this plan, all right, let's start reading the Bible. So we jump into Genesis. Genesis is a entertaining book. Exodus is entertaining. Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all of a sudden, And we miss a lot of these Old Testament books, and so for some of us, maybe we've been Christians for a long time, we, we may not be able to find a book like Nehemiah easily. For us that uh, may be new in our faith, Nehemiah also may be a book that we've not read. So we're going to kind of save ourselves, you know, the trying to navigate and find this book of Nehemiah. So table of contents, if, if you've got a Bible like mine, there's 809 pages of the Old Testament, Nehemiah is page 408. So it's kind of right in the middle. So we're searching for Nehemiah again. It's okay to be in the table of contents. Not a bad thing. Find Nehemiah and then turn there. And go to Nehemiah chapter 1 as we start this new series in the, in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we're going to spend probably the next six, seven weeks talking uh, about Nehemiah and seeing what God wants to teach us through the book of Nehemiah. And if you read it and you just kind of glance over it, it looks more like a book, okay? You know, taking on a building project, that, that kind of makes sense. But there's a whole lot more to it than just building walls, than, than just a building project. We could look, if we wanted to find a good building project, we could look throughout the course of history, and there are a lot of great building projects, aren't there? A lot of great uh, uh, buildings have been built throughout the course of history. If we wanted to learn how to do that, we would turn there. But Nehemiah has so much more in store for us than just building a building. It's a story essentially of God's people and how God wants to work in and through us for his purpose, for his glory. And so we want to look at Nehemiah, we want to look at it as an example, not only as we want to, want to begin and, and take hold of this project as we start, you know, we're going to talk about this morning, but what this building uh, we're going to build or remodel over our feet. And we're excited about that, we're excited to see what God will do and how God will use this instrument for his kingdom. But understand, it's more than just grace and mortar. It's just people. And we are the church. And what God wants to teach us is what he can do in and through us for his purposes and his glory. So Nehemiah is going to teach us that, okay? And it's going to be a great book to kind of, to kind of guide us in that, especially as we think about building a building. We're excited about that. We're encouraged by that. But more so, what is God going to do in the lives of his people? being us. What does God want to teach us? And so that's the question we want to ask ourselves as we go through the book of Nehemiah. Before we begin, before we jump into chapter 1, we've got to do a little background. And so we're going to kind of guide through it real quickly, but we want to go back to 14, can you go to that first slide there? 1446 B.C. And forgive me, I'm not great, I'm not like Mike Johnson, like great in this with slides, alright, so, you know. Take it or leave it. So, uh, here we are. So, 1446 BC, God, Moses leads God's people to the promised land. Okay? You know the story, right? Uh, they're in captivity, they're in Egypt, they're in captivity. Moses leads them out. God has given them the promised land, so that's where they're at now. God has given them a place flowing with milk and honey. Some things that happen when they go into the promised land. Uh, God tells them that if they obey him and his laws, they would know his blessing. All right? They would thrive as a nation. If they obeyed his commands, if they obeyed
obeyed his laws as a nation, they were dropped. God also told them that if they didn't, if they didn't obey his commands, if they didn't obey his laws, he was going to scatter them. And if you look at, at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, listen to this. Nehemiah reminding God of his promises. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this prayer. We'll save that for next week, but I want to share this. Nehemiah prays this. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. As we're going to see here in a little bit, they are. They are exiles. They are about as far away at the given time that they could be from his chosen, from his chosen place. And so what, what, is, what is Nehemiah praying here? Nehemiah is simply praying what God has already promised. I love it. I love it. Nehemiah's prayer is praying back to God something God has already promised. And if you look through the Old Testament, you study the Old Testament and see some prayers in the Old Testament, this happens often. People praying what God has already promised. What a great way to pray, isn't it? God, I'm going to pray this because you've already promised it to me. You've already promised this. As we want to be people that know the scripture, know what God has promised us, know how God wants to work in our life, so we can pray that. Nehemiah gives it to that. So, 1446 BC, the people enter the promised land. All right, we know that. Okay, next slide. Let's go about 400 years later. Uh, in 1035 BC, you understand how that works? No. The numbers get smaller, we get closer to the present day. Okay, All right, uh, David defeats Goliath. Jerusalem is established as God's holy city. Okay, so Jerusalem is now God's holy city. Shortly after David, we know his son is Solomon, and Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. And for the first time, there's now a place where you can rightly worship God. God has uh, ordained and set up this place, this city, Jerusalem, the holy city. And this temple where for the first time there is a place where you can rightly worship God. Solomon, in the dedication of the temple, says this. He told them that every day forward they would look towards Jerusalem when they prayed. If they disobeyed God, God's commandments, he would drive them out. But if they looked toward Jerusalem, he would bring them back. Okay, Jerusalem again, the temple. This is where God was. And it was set up that, okay, this is where you, this is where God is going to be. If we're going to pray, this is where we pray too. And we're going to go to the next slide. And we want to remember Daniel. Right? Remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den with King Darius? Why was he arrested? Three, three times a day he prayed towards Jerusalem. Daniel understood the promise in God's word. God, he understood what Solomon said when Solomon dedicated the temple. He was praying towards Jerusalem where God was. So we, we move up to 605 BC. Remember when we went through the book of Daniel several months ago? You guys remember that? All right, not that long ago. Alan uh, led us and started us in that series and uh, reminded us or, or, or told us how uh, that they were brought into exile, 605 BC. Uh, they're into exile. They're taken to Babylon. And, and that was basically a walk from basically if we were in Des Moines to Atlanta. Okay, that was the distance they were taking. So they, they, they travel on comes, uh, they're conquered, and they take the best of the best. All right, this is the cream of the crop. Guys like Daniel, the leaders of the country, and they march them out. And this happened because, why? Remember back to the, the, 
covenant that was made with Moses, what God told Moses. If you disobey me, if you quit following my laws, I'm going to scatter you. And that's what happens. They disobey. If you read through the Old Testament, you see it back and forth, right? They'll follow God for a time. They'll pursue his, his kingdoms, his statutes. That they'll pursue his word. They'll pursue him. They'll worship him. And then there's a time and they, 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 that they don't. Eventually, God grows tired of it. And he scatters them. And that's what takes place in the exile. The best of the best, the cream of the crop, are marched to Babylon. So now they're in Babylon. Daniel's taken to Babylon. A few years later, in 586 B.C., the temple and the walls are destroyed. And that's when we, when we start talking about the book of Nehemiah, we see that the walls and the temple, the temple's going to be built prior to that, we'll get into that in a second, but the, but the walls are destroyed. This is when it happened, 586 B.C. Next slide, please. Okay, so from uh, 539, 536 B.C., here's what happens. Babylon is captured, 539. If you read through Isaiah and Jeremiah, these guys lived about 150 years prior to this happening, and they prophesied about it. One, one awesome thing about reading through the Old Testament is, is that you get to see some prophecy fulfilled. You, you see it both in the Old Testament, and then you see it through Jesus, the coming Messiah, that, how much prophecy that he fulfilled. But here we see, 150 years prior, Jeremiah talking about it. That they're, the nation of Israel, if they don't repent, is going to go into exile for 70 years. 70 years, number 606, right? 606 BC. They're going to go into exile for 70 years. Even in that passage in Isaiah, Cyrus, who decrees the return of the Jews, 538, is named by name. And so it's sweet. Here, 150 years prior, the name of Cyrus is brought up. Prophecy fulfilled. Even the guy's name that's going to be in charge, the, the king of Persia. So Babylon is fallen. Persia takes over. That's Cyrus. He decrees the return of the Jews in 538. And in 536, 70 years after the exile, 49,987 Jews returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so nearly 50,000 returned some 70 years later. So we're going to where Daniel is and read the book of Daniel is going to go into some of this time. But now we get to 536. They begin to build the temple in 535. Uh, if you are in the book of Nehemiah, the book before Nehemiah is the book of Ezra. And Ezra is the story of God's people returning from exile. Okay, so it's great. Ezra and Nehemiah actually were one book. And so it's important to kind of read them together. Because as you read Ezra, you see the story of how God returns his people, right? Remember the promise of God that if you look towards Jerusalem, if you turn back, he's going to restore. And that's what he's doing. And the story of Ezra tells us that. And you'll, you'll read in Ezra how the temple begins to, to be rebuilt in 535. Uh, there's some things that take place, some opposition that takes place. It eventually is not finished until 515. Remember, the temple is where God dwells. So 515, the temple is finished. You can go to the next slide. You know, I don't know a lot of queens, so I just want to clean the team. In 578 BC, there's a story after the book of Nehemiah. It's the story of Esther. And the story of Esther is she's made queen of Persia. Now remember, Persia has now come in. They've conquered Babylon. Esther, a Jew, becomes the queen. And if you read through the story of Esther, it's a great story. But Esther basically has the courage to stand up for a nation. And the remaining Jews that are in the land, she stands up for. And they are, 
they're going to be wiped out. They're going to be they're going to be murdered. She stands up for them, and they're saved. Likely, guys like Ezra and Nehemiah are a part of that. And so you read a story like Nehemiah or uh, Esther, and it's a sweet story. It's an awesome story. But then you you get a, a full picture of what God wants to do. Not only did He work through Esther, but because of Esther, man, guys like Ezra and Nehemiah and more stories of the Bible happen. And, and it's a it's a testimony. To trusting God, even in, in circumstances when we have to be bold, when we have to be back that courage, like Esther, and God is not only going to use that circumstance, but look how it continues. Well, not, not through but, uh, but through Ezra and Nehemiah, say, and then we see stories like Ezra and Nehemiah and how God uses them mightily for His kingdom. So that's 478, 458 BC. Ezra returns to Jerusalem. In the story of Ezra, remember it talks about how they returned from exile. As a, the people, uh, those 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem. Ezra's not a part of that group, okay? You, you can read about the temple being rebuilt. Uh, you can read about all of that in Ezra. But Ezra actually doesn't return until 458 B.C. And Ezra's return is not to build the temple. Ezra's return is because he has a heart for God. God's people are far from God's people need him. They need to learn how to worship. They need to learn how to follow his word. And Ezra has a, is moved to lead God's people in that way. And so in 458, Ezra leaves and heads back to Jerusalem for that purpose. Ezra is called by God to go back and teach the people how to follow God, how to worship God. That's 458 B.C. That brings us to now. Well, not now. 455, you get the point. 455 BC and the story of Nehemiah. And so that's where we are uh, going to begin is the story of uh, Nehemiah here in 455 BC. So from when they've been let out of the promised land to Nehemiah, it's about a thousand years. So that's your, your quick crash course today in some uh, Old Testament uh, history. So 455. 445 B.C. brings us to Nehemiah. So as we start the book of Nehemiah, there's some things we want to learn about Nehemiah. And we'll read about it and we'll study it, but one of the things we want to learn is Nehemiah is a cupbearer. Okay? And what a cupbearer was is someone who is basically taking the drink before the king will drink it. Or he's making sure there's no poison in it, making sure that what the king is about to eat or drink is okay for him to be safe. So if something is poisonous, obviously, Nehemiah is going to the effects of that. So Nehemiah is a cupbearer. Well, with a cupbearer comes some responsibility, comes probably some closeness with the king. He was probably an advisor to the king. So he's been put kind of in an elevated position. But what I love about Nehemiah is that he's really an ordinary guy, right? If you read through a lot of the Old Testament, you'll see stories about kings. You'll see stories about prophets. You'll see these stories of great men of God who had these great positions. But Nehemiah is really an ordinary guy. He's an ordinary guy. Now, he's been put in a, a certain position, but what encouragement for, for people like us, this is an offense to anybody, but we're pretty ordinary people, aren't we? We're ordinary people. But yet, through working through and in us, God can do some amazing things. And so reading a story like Nehemiah and seeing how God works in him for God's people can be an encouragement and challenge to us. And I want to be a guy like Nehemiah, who's ordinary, yet 
God does amazing things through him. And so we see that in the life of Nehemiah. He's an ordinary guy, but God does some extraordinary things in and through him and for God's people to bring glory to God. So Nehemiah, that's, that, that's kind of the story of Nehemiah. I want to read a few verses here north in, in Nehemiah. Uh, the first four verses. Here's what it says. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakalot, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, I can, I can stop right there. Let me, let me tell you one thing. If you read fast and act like you know what you're saying, people will believe you. In the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanadiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We're going to dive into these verses here in a little bit, but what we want to look at is the story of Nehemiah. And it's a story not much different than maybe our story that, that we're talking about right now for us. It's a story of them beginning a project, beginning to build these walls so God's people could meet, so God's people could be saved, so God's people could be together and learn how to worship God, learn how to follow Him. They are in an urban community, much like us. Nehemiah has a desire to impact the culture, much like us. They are waiting for Jesus. In the Old Testament, they are waiting for the Messiah to come, aren't they? For us, we're waiting for the Messiah to return. They're in a situation not that much different from us. And so as we go through Nehemiah, we talk about Nehemiah, we want to even think about what God may do for us over on Beaver, over that new building that, that we're constructing or remodeling over there. What, what may God teach us? What may God show us? May God teach us that it's not just about the bricks and mortar, that it's not just about the building, but how, as we, as the people of God, may impact the culture and the world around us. See, Jerusalem was to be a beacon. All right, Isaiah even talks about this. They are to be a beacon. So when the world looks and sees Jerusalem and see God's people, they can see the power of God. So God's people in the Old Testament, Jerusalem in the Old Testament, was to be a beacon. They were to be a light. They were to be and display the power of God. So when people would see Jerusalem, or people would see the people of God, they would understand God's power. And Jerusalem is a picture of what the church is to be today. We are to be a beacon displaying God's power, sharing God's love. And understand, that, you know, you, you maybe learned as a kid, see the church, see the steeple. You guys learned that as a kid. Look inside, see God's people. Right, that's not very good theology. This is not the church. When we say, see uh, the church is to be a beacon, this is the church, right? The people of God are the church. We are the church. All right, Understand that we are the church. And so we are to be the beacon. And when we talk about Cornerstone, we talk about us as individuals, Cornerstone as a church, or the church universal, and we're to be that beacon. We're to be the light. When people look at us, they can see the power of God. They can see the love of God. They can see God at work in a broken world. And 
so we want to continue to think about what God may, may do through us and in us. And, and, and I was thinking about some, some statistics as we move closer to, to moving into that new building. We want to be encouraged. We want to be challenged. We want to ask ourselves, what is God going to do through us? And so I pulled up some statistics really quick. All right, this is a five-mile radius of our new building. Okay, we're somewhere right in the middle. You can kind of see it up there. But this is a five-mile radius of where that new building is going up. And so we, as we construct this building of a brick and mortar, we want to talk about how can we impact the culture around us. So a five-mile radius, we go to the next slide, there are 133,967 people within a five-mile radius of that building. The median age of that group is a 33-year-old man. All right, get that picture in your mind. The median age is 33-year-old man. When we talk about who are we going to reach, how are we going to reach them? 33-year-old male, what comes with a 33-year-old male, typically? A wife? Kids? This is the, the, the culture. This is the world we want to impact. 33-year-old male, 59% of people in that five-mile radius are within the ages of 13 and 45. Okay, if you're not in that, I apologize for not being in that percentile, but that's all right. 30, 13 to 45. In this range, in this community, 82% of people have a belief in God. All right, they have some uh, belief in, in, you know, a God or a higher being or something. 82% have a belief in God. Basically, 63.5% of people are not committed or somewhat involved in a church. They, they may have, you know, 30, probably a third of the people don't have a church at all. A third of the people maybe say, you know, I go to this church and maybe show up for Easter. Maybe not even that. So they may have some affiliation. That puts within a five-mile radius 85,069 people not committed or somewhat committed to a church. And we know beyond that, there are several churches that don't preach the gospel, that don't tell people about Jesus, that don't impress people with the, with the truth of Scripture and the sin in their life because they don't want to offend or for some reason or another. They think Jesus is divisive, which he is. But 85,069 people not committed or somewhat involved in a church. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Within that same five-mile radius, 16% of the households, all right, one in six households, are dealing with drug or alcohol addiction. Somebody within that range, with a one in six, dealing with a drug or alcohol addiction. We as a church, isn't this an opportunity for them to know and encounter a God that can be free, the God that can heal, the God that can show them? <laughs> They don't need to, to know these addictions. They don't need to throw their life away. They can know a God that loves them. Even in spite of all that, God loves them and wants them to know his son. 20%, remember these, these households, the average age, the median, a lot of these people have kids. One in five are dealing with issues with their kids. Can't the church be a place of refuge? Can't the church be a place where they can experience the love of God, where they can experience real teaching on how to raise a family, on how to teach their kids, on how to discipline their kids, on how to deal with those issues. And so for us, when we talk about Nehemiah, we look at a, a building project of our own. Who cares about a building? I mean, it's cool. But what can we do? How can we impact the world around us? Next slide. If you, if you go out a little further, 10-mile radius, most of you probably actually live within that 10-mile radius. There are 408,067 people in that 10-mile radius. Just 10 miles, but we're putting this church. We're putting this building. 
That's 259,122 people not committed or somewhat involved in the church. That's a, that's a big number, isn't it? That's a big number to me, at least. That's a lot of people that don't know Jesus. That's a lot of people that aren't committed, aren't connected with, with, a, with a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus. We want to impact those people within a 10-mile radius. Covering basically the Moines, West Moines, Urbandale, Bryan, Tanking, Hope City, Johnston, obviously. So the question becomes, how can we take the principles that we learned in the book of Nehemiah and impact the culture? See, Nehemiah, he wanted to impact the culture. He wanted to impact God's people. He had a heart for God's people. And so we, asked him, we want to ask ourselves the same questions. How can we impact the world and the culture around us? So we share these stats so we can look at it. We can be challenged. You know what? We don't have to go to Africa. We don't have to go to China. There is a lost and dying world right next door. And we have a responsibility to share who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. So we want to do that. We want to be about that. And when we put the brick and the mortar up, God, use this for your kingdom. Use this so we can impact the 259,000 people within 10 miles. That's what we want, isn't it? That's what we want. Amen. All right. So that's, that's what we want to think about as we, we dig in to the book of Nehemiah. I want to read some of these verses, and we want to take a glimpse at the heart of Nehemiah. I love looking at a guy like this, because this guy, this guy gets it. He has a heart for God, and he has a heart for God's people. Let me read those words again. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakalot. The words of Nehemiah. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Nick and Heather were up here sharing it, and Heather shared something out of her journal. And here, much like what we read out of had to read to us out of her journal. This, this is basically like a journal. This is basically God, or uh, Nehemiah, sharing his thoughts with God. And we get a glimpse of Nehemiah's heart through his writings. And so it's kind of like that. And, and as Heather challenged it, I challenge it the same way. It's something I've done well at times, it's something I've not done well at times. But man, if we journal, it's a great way to write down our prayers. It's a great way to, to look and see what God is teaching us, to write those things down so we can look back and see how God has worked, how God has moved, how, how we've grown in our relationship with Him. So we encourage you, much like Heather did a couple weeks ago, and we get a glimpse of it here with Nehemiah as well. Here's what Nehemiah tells us. In the month of his left, that's probably November, December, it's winter months. In the 20th year, this is 445 B.C., Artaxerxes is the king at the time. That's how we know the date. It's the 20th year of his reign. Was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned, and I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. So his brother comes back. I don't know where his brother was or how long he was gone. But understand, remember, they went into exile 141 years prior to this. Okay, so Nehemiah is here. His brother at some time was probably in exile with him. Maybe he returned to Ezra. If I had to guess, that probably when he went back, he probably returned to Ezra. He returns now, and he's sharing this message uh, with Nehemiah. And the message again here is, is this. Those who survived in exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. 
When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Remember, exile, 605 BC, right? 586 BC, the walls of Jerusalem are destroyed. The gates are on fire, 586. We are now in 445 BC, 145, 141 years later. Some time has passed since this took place, okay? I want you to imagine, Mike, Mike's kind of from Chicago, right? So I, I come up to Mike, and I, Mike, I will tell you what happened in Chicago. Mike, there was three days of fire. Okay, three days of fire. 30 of 185 firefighters were injured. Over 300 people died. Buildings were burned to the ground. They were burned to the ground. You know, I'm, I'm talking about the Chicago fire, right? They happened October 8th through October 11th in 1871. 141 years ago from yesterday. Mike doesn't seem to be weeping, does he? Well, how, why does Nehemiah respond like this? This is 141 years. Nehemiah knows the story, okay? Nehemiah knows that the walls have been destroyed. Nehemiah knows that the gates have been burned. His brother Sharon is with him. And what other news you got? Yeah, you know, Moses part of the Red Sea, they were killed black. I understand the history. Okay? Why is he weeping? Mike's not weeping over Chicago. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a sad story. Building destroyed, three people died. That was 141 years ago. See, Nehemiah's heart is not for the walls. It's not for the gates. He's not weeping over those things. What's he weeping for? Why is he mourning? Why is he weeping? Why is he fasting and praying? Nehemiah's heart it's for God's people. It's for God's people. He is distressed because God's people are not worshiping God. We saw in that clip early on. The walls are broken. Worshiping God is not taking place. There's no safety in it. People are not learning how to follow God's word. People are not learning how to pursue the kingdom of God. Nehemiah is not broken because the walls are destroyed, because the gates are on fire. This isn't news to him. He's broken because the hearts of God's people are not pursuing and following God. What a picture, what a glimpse for us. If you read on and you see in chapter 2, you're going to see that he eventually goes before the king. And it's three to four months later that he actually does this. So it's not that he's just weeping and mourning and praying and fasting for a day. Three, four months before he finally goes to the king. Nehemiah is praying, he's fasting, he's doing all these things for three or four months. Let me ask you a question. Let me challenge you with something. When is the last time we've been that broken over the church? When is the last time we've been that broken over people that are apart and separated from God? He's mourning, he's weeping, he's broken. He's fasting and praying for three or four months for God's people. And to have a heart like Nehemiah. Nehemiah's heart, not for the walls. Yeah, he wanted to see the walls rebuilt, but why did he want to see the walls rebuilt? So God's people would fall. So God's people would worship him. Why do we want to see a building be built over on Beaver? Why do we want to see that remodeled? So we got a place to hang out? No. So God's people may know him. So a world and a culture around us may know the power of the gospel. 
We know the power and the healing that comes only through Jesus. That's what we wanted. Nehemiah's heart was for God's people. And he cried, and he wept, and he mourned, and he fasted, and he prayed for almost four months for that. How often am I moved by, by that in an afternoon? In a day, when am I moved by that? Now, I'm probably more moved if Iowa State would lose a football game than a broken world around us. And yet for three or four months, he prays for them. And imagine praying for a cause for that long. Praying and fasting for something for that long. He showed God how diligent, how, how, how passionate he was about that in his response that we see here in Nehemiah. So we challenge uh, by looking at a guy like Nehemiah, have a heart. We challenge to have a heart like Nehemiah. And if I care about a cause, that's not just, yeah, let's, let's pray about it for five minutes. But my life is impacted greatly by it. Nehemiah, he fasted and prayed for four months about it. Whether it's People dying of starvation in Africa, whether it's my neighbor who's separated from the love of God through, through not knowing the finished work on the cross, I want to be someone who's moved by that. That I am in prayer, I am in fasting, I am weeping over this. That's the heart of Nehemiah. That's the heart that I want. And I pray that that's the heart that we want as followers of Jesus, as his church. Uh, as, as people who want to impact the kingdom of God greatly. That's his, his response. He wept and he prayed for days. And he did this for two reasons. Nehemiah has a heart for God, and he has a heart for God's people. And he is moved because there's not a connection between the two. And it's important that we look at them together, because there is a connection. You can be moved for God, but you also need to be moved for God's people. And the reason for that is, like Jerusalem was a beacon for a world to know the awesomeness of God and the power of God, we too, as people, are to be a beacon for Him. When the world looks at us, they're supposed to see Jesus. When the world looks at us as a church, as individuals, as a church, as a church universal, they're not supposed to be turned off by us. And yet, how much of the world is turned off by the church? How many days do we go until we hear a story of another fallen leader or somebody that's screwed up here? We see it all over the place. We see it all over the place. And the church, we should be broken over that. That the church is not a beacon. That the church is not a representation of who God is and what God has done through his son Jesus. And our heart, like Nehemiah's heart, should break, should break over that. We can drive down the street, can't we? We can see churches. Maybe they were once churches that proclaimed the name of Jesus, and now they don't. They may have had thousands of people, and now they don't. And you could probably walk in there. What's the deal? Do you guys talk about Jesus? They probably don't. No. No, we, we don't want to be divisive. Well, do you talk about sin? No, we don't want to turn people away. We want to be a church that proclaims Jesus. We want to be a church that's bold about what the Bible teaches. To let it convict people, to let them know that you can be changed through the gospel of Jesus. And we can give you a blueprint of how you were to follow God, the things we're supposed to be doing in this pursuit of the kingdom of God. And what we learn from Nehemiah is that, that he has a heart both towards God and he has a heart towards God's people. And they're ever connected. Because if God's people 
part of pursuing and worshiping and learning how to follow God. So the world isn't going to see Jesus. The world isn't going to know what to do. And I don't want no part of it. But when we, as a church, pursue God, follow God, follow what he's laid out for us, love Jesus with all our heart, love his church with all our heart. Remember John 17, if, if, if they pray, if my people are one, the world's going to see that God sent, that God sent. We want to be one with the church. We want to even partner with, like we're doing with all of that, with our youth and our one, to have a partnership with other churches in the area. Because what God's going to reach those 200 and some thousand people, he's going to have to use more than just more of some community church. He wants to use, he wants to impact the world around us. And we have a chance to be a part of that. We have a chance to join with other churches in that. But it begins with having a heart like me and mine. A heart for God and a heart for God's people. This is where it begins. And as we read through, and Tim's going to continue next week as we, we look in the book of Nehemiah, realize that it's not about the bricks and the mortars, but it's about God's people, the church. Will we love God? Will we have a heart for his people and his church? Will we be broken because the world is not seeing God, because the church is not being a beacon, a light in a dark and broken and busted up world. We are to be that beacon, the church. We're going to continue, and, and the band is going to come back up here, and we're going to have a chance to remember Jesus. See, here's the beautiful thing. Old Testament, Jerusalem, temple, that's where you worship God rightly, right? That's where you went to worship God rightly. Something happened, though, didn't it? When Jesus came, it all changed. When Jesus came, the way we worship the place we worship, it all changed. There wasn't needed to be a holy city like Jerusalem or a temple like that because Jesus, he broke the veil and he provided a way for us to meet God. He provided a way for us to encounter a living God when Jesus died on the cross. And we no longer have to make these sacrifices. You know, in the old days, in the temple, they would sacrifice goats and rams and they would do all these things but Jesus provided that ultimate and that perfect sacrifice for us. And now, Ephesians 2 tells us that God dwells in us. No longer about a temple, no longer about a holy city, but God dwells in us because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So as we read and we study through Nehemiah and be moved by his heart, it's hard for God, and it's hard for people that they want to worship Him, and they want God's people to follow so they can be a people. And now, we can come, and we can remember who Jesus is and what He's done, and that we no longer have to go to a holy city, we no longer have to sacrifice a goat or a ram or whatever else, but I can come before God right now. Right now, I can come before God. That's an unbelievable thing. If you really think about uh, what that means, man, it's not something to be taken lightly. I can come before a perfect and holy God because there was a perfect and holy sacrifice made for me. That was in Jesus and the finished work of the cross. So we're going to have an opportunity as we continue to worship. We're going to have an opportunity to remember Jesus' body that was broken and his blood that was shed.
you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we want you to understand what that is. We want you to understand that you can be free of your sin. No matter how ugly you think it might look, no matter all the things you think you might have done, you can know Jesus. You can be made in right standing before God through Jesus alone. Even today, even today, Romans tells us today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. For us that have known God, and I would challenge myself to start with, it's awesome as we go through the prayer in Nehemiah, he starts with himself, okay? I confess my own sin and the sin of the nation. Starts with himself. But to have a heart like Nehemiah, connected, we have a heart for God, and we have a heart for God's people. And if God is going to move in the world and the culture around us, it's because we have a heart for both of those things. Yeah, we love God, but we love God's people. And when those two are connected, God can do an amazing thing. And so may God be working on us right now for us to know Jesus. May he convict us, may he challenge us, if there's sin in our life, may we show it, and may we confess it so we can be in right stand, confess our sins. So we'll take the bread and the juice, I'll pray for it, and we encourage you that if you know and have a, have a relationship with Jesus and partake in it, celebrate and worship the finished work on the cross. That I can be right standing because a perfect and a holy God gave us a perfect and a holy sacrifice in Son Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you. First and foremost, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that there's not a holy city we have to walk to or a temple that we have to go to, but you dwell in us, for us to know you, for us to have a relationship with you. God, you have done that because of the cross. You have done that because of your son. You have done that because the work has been taken care of. My sin has been erased because of Jesus. Finished work on the cross. This morning, we want to be challenged to have a heart like Nehemiah as we take on this big project that's coming up and building this building. We want to have a heart like Nehemiah. A heart for God and a love for God, but also a love for God's people and a love to see people in the culture meet and encounter and be challenged by Jesus. So God, challenge us. Help us to realize first that you want to work in, in and among your people for your purpose and for your glory. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we can be here this morning we can be here in right standing before you because Jesus has died for us. That the ultimate sacrifice is to pay, the ultimate price is to pay through the work on the cross. That you have died and you have risen again to conquer death, sin, and hell. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.